Hello, everyone. Coming up on today's episode of The Van Maren Show, we're going to talk to 40 Days for Life founder David B. Wright and hear the inside story on how a movement went to a protest outside a single clinic to a worldwide movement participated with by tens of thousands of people and saving thousands of babies. That's coming right up. Well, to get this started, uh, when did your journey into the pro-life movement formally begin? Most people will know you as one of the founders of 40 Days for Life, but when did abortion get, first get laid on your heart as an issue that would uh, define the rest of your life, basically? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, really, for me, it all began primarily in 1998. And that was the year that Planned Parenthood announced that it was building its first ever abortion facility in the town where I used to live. And that's the town of College Station, Texas. And so I was living my life very happily. I was married. My wife, Margaret, uh, was a school teacher. And we were really just oblivious. I was ignorant to the issue of abortion. I had grown up in a Christian home. It was never discussed. I grew up in a small Protestant church. It was never a matter of, of that we discussed at church. It was never preached in a sermon. And so when the news broke in 1998 that Planned Parenthood was building this abortion center, all of a sudden I had to face the reality that this is coming to the town where I live. Right. And I have a question of what am I going to do about it? And so really what I wanted to do about it was nothing. But right. my wife being a very, um, a very spiritually wise person and somebody who'd grown up in the pro-life movement in Corpus Christi, Texas, she said, David, we need to be involved. This is coming to our town. We're one day going to be held accountable for what we do or don't do. And so when we learned that a friend of ours, a young church secretary, was organizing a meeting at a local church, St. Mary's Catholic Center at Texas A&M, to respond to this news about Planned Parenthood's intent to build this abortion clinic, we said, well, we've got to go to this meeting. And so we went that night. Margaret kind of dragged me, not quite kicking and screaming, but certainly was not in my comfort zone. Let's put it that way. And when we got to that meeting that night, Jonathan, I will never forget it. Margaret wanted to sit right up at the front and get involved. I wanted to sit in the back and get out. <laughs> and we ended up negotiating somewhere in the middle. And that night, as everybody was getting excited and saying, we can do this, we can do that, and they were forming committees and, and talking about all the different ways that they could make a difference, I remember feeling this deep conviction in my heart that God had a role for me, as much as I didn't want to, that he had something he wanted me to do. And I looked around at all these other people. Some of them were much sharper than I was. Some of them were much smarter than I was. Many of them knew how to articulate the dignity of human life. Many of them knew how to run nonprofits. I had none of that. But I kept feeling that conviction that I had a role and that one day I would be held accountable for what I did or failed to do. So Margaret and I began to get just a little bit involved, baby step by baby step, joining with that local group that was formed, the Coalition for Life. It was founded by Lauren Gouldy, that young church secretary, and as we started to get involved, we started to get more and more convicted. And I remember a day that forever changed the direction of my life, even beyond what happened in that church that night, when Margaret said, David, we need to go out and pray at that site where the abortion facility is being built. And I, I did not want to go. I was a pharmaceutical sales rep. I was worried what my customers would think and what friends and people driving by would think. I was worried about, you know, the stereotypes of the crazy pro-lifers. What would I experience? But that day when Margaret, a very good wife, convinced me that I needed to go, we went out there and as I saw that structure that was being erected with one intent, to destroy the lives of children made in God's image and likeness, yeah. and to wound women, I just said, 
I have to do more. And so it was during that time of prayer, even before the facility opened, that God really convicted me that I had an ongoing role in this as long as until this crisis ends, until that day comes when no more women cry and no more children die. So that was really kind of the the two monumental events that led me into this. And so I started volunteering. I served on the board of directors of that group, the Coalition for Life. Uh, The first board meeting I walked into, they announced that the previous chairman of the board had just stepped down and resigned. And so they said, well, we need to have a new board chair before this meeting's over. And Jonathan, before the end of that meeting, I was the only one who didn't say no fast enough. So I walked out as the chairman of the board of this pro-life organization. So God just had such a beautiful plan as he got me more and more involved. But, you know, those were the moments that drew me into the movement. And then over time, he helped to grow and form me to be able to do all the different things that I've been blessed to be a part of for these many years. So, so chronologically, let's walk from when you got voluntold to be the, the chair, chairman of, of a board to the founding of, of 40 Days for Life. Because one of the yes. things that's interesting about 40 Days for Life is it's one of these these pro-life phenomenon that's become almost ubiquitous, but very few people actually know the story of how 40 Days for Life was founded and how it came to be. So maybe walk us through the story of how you got from that night where you ended up as the chairman to how you ended up as one of the founders of 40 Days for Life, which I believe right now is one of the biggest uh, pro-life, like annual pro-life campaigns in the world. Yes. Well, it's a great question. And again, it demonstrates how much God is at work in the midst of all these things, Jonathan, because when I came on the board of that group, the Coalition for Life, I floundered for several years. And I felt that under my leadership, really, we we missed the mark. Abortions were going up in our town. The number of people participating in the pro-life movement was going down. And I actually stepped off the board of that organization feeling like a complete and total failure after a few years. And so it was actually in the midst of that that I went to a a banquet for that group to raise money. We had our smallest turnout ever. We raised the least amount of money we'd raised in the few years of its existence. And it was announced at that event that I was stepping off the board and that my time was up. And I was so thankful because I wanted to go do something where people would like me. I wanted to do something where I felt like I was making a difference. And this clearly at that moment didn't seem to be it. But that night we had a speaker at that event and his name, you know him well, is Joe Scheidler. And when Joe came to that event, He really rallied the people there to do more than they had ever done before. And in the midst of his talk, Jonathan, he said, I even believe that there's somebody here tonight that God is calling to be involved in this work full time as a profession. And it was like he was speaking straight to me. Right. And it really, uh, it struck me. I mean, here I was, I was quitting, right, from my volunteer role. And now all of a sudden I'm discerning this, wait, am I supposed to do this full time? Uh, I'll give you a quick side note and then I'll come back to the mm-hmm. chronology of this. So years later, I, I told Joe Scheidor, who's been a dear friend, Joe and Ann and their whole family, I told Joe how profound those words were. And I said, the Holy Spirit clearly inspired you. And he he laughed and he said, I pretty much say that in every talk that I ever do. (laughs) And I've met so many other people who felt in other talks that Joe has done that he was talking to them when he said the same thing, but the Holy Spirit used him that night. So I went away from that banquet just struggling. What do I do? How do I do it? And within a few weeks after that, I really felt convicted on June 26, 2001. I called Lauren, that young church secretary who was running the group, the coalition. And I said, Lauren, I feel like I'm supposed to do more. And I feel like we're not doing enough. Abortions are going up. And she said, well, David, I'm, I'm trying to right now you know, arrange things so I can stay at home. I just had a baby. And maybe you're supposed to quit your job and devote yourself full time to doing this. And I, I was stunned by this comment. And then it just hit me and light went on. And I realized 
that is what I'm supposed to do. What Joe said, what, what Lauren had encouraged me. Now, the big part was, okay, now I got to go home and talk to my wife about this. Right. But I went home and talked to Margaret, who grew up in the pro-life movement. And I said, Margaret, I'm feeling this conviction. I'm supposed to do this. And she said, you know, David, to whom much is given, much is required. We have been richly blessed. And if this is what God is asking us to do, let's go talk to our pastor. And we did. And uh, he said, you know, again, similarly, I, I think you can do this and we'll, we'll back you. And it was the campus ministry there at Texas A&M, uh, St. Mary's Catholic Center. Our pastor, then Father Mike Sis, now Bishop Mike Sis of the Diocese of San Angelo, Texas. So with that, I took that leap of faith and left the full-time work I was doing in the pharmaceutical industry as a sales rep and dove into running this pro-life organization. So over those next few years, we tried everything. We really built out sidewalk counseling efforts. We got people to go out and pray at the abortion center. We tried voter campaigns. We tried educational campaigns. I mean, we tried things that failed miserably and we tried things that really succeeded. But an, another pivotal moment, and again, I think all of us need to be in tune to where the Holy Spirit is speaking to us, but in the summer of 2004, we felt that we had hit a wall because, again, we had grown, but then things leveled off and they were starting to decline again. Right. And so one day out of desperation, I met with our staff there in our little office. I was the executive director of this group. And there were three other people working for me and we sat at our conference table and I just shared with them our, my frustration that, you know what, lives continue to be lost and it seems like we're making less and less progress on this front. What do we do? And we decided to pray. And it was something we had done anecdotally before, but that day we intentionally spent one hour in focused prayer asking God to show us what we could do in the midst of this challenge. So during that hour of prayer, the first thing that God put on our hearts was a time frame of 40 days, because throughout scripture, we see that time frame over and over again, a time frame that God has used to bring about miraculous transformation in the world throughout the biblical history, and also a time that usually he was using to test the faithfulness of his people. So we felt our faithfulness was being tested. We also felt that we needed some transformation in our community. So we, we really, as we were praying, discerned, okay, we're supposed to do something for 40 days. But then the question was, what do you do? Right. Well, the three things that we, through our prayer, decided to do, number one, was for ourselves and our community to pray and fast. And that is so critically important because with, with man ending abortion, it's impossible, I believe. But with yeah. God, all things are possible. And we're told in scripture, there are some demons that can only be driven out through prayer and fasting. And we felt that was a very important component. So that was the first piece. The second piece was a constant 24-hour-a-day nonstop prayer vigil outside of the Planned Parenthood facility. And it was actually an idea that had been suggested to me the night before by a young friend, David Araby, who had been over at my house for a potluck dinner. And he had said, hey, if we really want to act like what we say we believe, why aren't we out there 24 hours a day right. outside of this place where children are losing their lives? So we just said, let's do that for 40 days. And the third and final piece was community outreach, taking this message of the dignity of human life to everybody we could in our community, going to churches and speaking in the media and going door to door. And, and so those three activities, prayer and fasting, peaceful vigil, community outreach, became the three pillars, if you will, of 40 Days for Life around that 40-day time frame. And when we finished that hour of prayer, we felt we had been given this clarion call to action. I can't speak for the other three people who were there praying at that table, but I will tell you, I was terrified and I didn't think we could pull this off. And I, I really wasn't convinced that it would work. But when we realized that if we failed to do that, 
Children would continue to die. Women would continue to be wounded. We said, well, what else is there? We didn't know anything else. So we said, let's do it. Right. So we, two weeks later, kicked off that first ever 40 Days for Life campaign. We saw a thousand people get involved in that local effort and we saw abortions reduced by 28%. Hands down, the biggest breakthrough that community ever experienced 28%. on the pro-life front. So when we finished that campaign, just carrying the chronology, I'll just fast forward to give you a quick uh, story and then we can drill down into any of this that you want. Mm -hmm. But when we finished that campaign, we had thought it was going to be a one-shot deal. There was never any grand plan for this to spread around the world as it is done. But when we finished it, we were exhausted and said, we are glad we did it. We'll never do it again. And nobody else would be crazy enough to do this. But one by one, other cities, I believe inspired by the Holy Spirit, began to replicate what they'd heard about. First, it was uh, Dallas, Texas, and then it was uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin, and then Houston, Texas, and then Kitsap County, Washington, and then Charlotte, North Carolina, and these other cities replicated what they had heard about, prayer and fasting, peaceful vigil, community outreach for 40 days, and they saw the same kinds of results. Right. And that was when we knew that God is up to something here, and we need to join him in what he's doing. So in 2007, I had moved away from Texas. I was actually working for the American Life League and had no intention of doing anything more with 40 Days for Life. But watching what God was doing through all these campaigns, I called a conference call and I asked all the leaders of these local efforts. And I said, what is God doing here? And are we supposed to do something with this? And as we all talked about the blessings that we had experienced, we realized, you know, to whom much is given, once again, much is required. And so we discerned through that call that maybe there was supposed to be a nationally coordinated 40 Days for Life. And just to show you again how small my vision was and how I know that really the founding of 40 Days for Life was the Holy Spirit, not any of us. But at the end of that call, I thought that maybe we'd have a dozen or 15 cities that would join together in this coordinated campaign. That was as big as my vision was. But when we put the word out and I began recruiting people, I thought, again, I can manage this as a volunteer on the side of what I'm doing for American Life League. It's all going to be great. We had 89 cities in 33 states across America joining that first effort. And, and I'll never forget, it was on the Feast of the Assumption. It was uh, August 15th. I went to my church. We had just closed the applications and we had nobody working for 40 Days for Life. It was just a volunteer run effort. And in prayer that day, I realized that I can't ask these 89 cities to do this grand effort and not be 100% committed to supporting them. And so I, I discerned in prayer to quit my job. I talked to my wife. I sent a message to Judy Brown, American Life League, and she gracefully released me from my service. And so for that first year, I was the only employee of 40 Days for Life. And so from day one, my family and I, we were homeschooling our kids. We hit the road and we just started visiting campaigns coast to coast. And it was such an incredible blessing. And then from there, it continued to grow. We had a guy in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis, Brian Gibson of the Pro-Life Action Ministries, who said, hey, you should do another campaign, a national campaign during the Lenten season. And so that birthed the second campaign each year was that suggestion of Brian Gibson. And then from there, they continued to grow. And then it spread internationally, of course, from the United States next to Canada and then to England and Australia and English-speaking countries. And if you fast forward to today, there have now been campaigns conducted in more than 800 cities across all 50 American states and more than 60 nations. And more than 800,000 volunteers have participated in these campaigns. And there have been confirmed reports. I'm sure there are many more, but the ones we know of, more than 16,000 lives spared from scheduled abortions. 191 abortion workers have had changes of heart and left the abortion industry, including people like Abby Johnson and so many others. 
And there have now been 104 abortion centers that have closed their doors and gone out of business for good. So again, God uses these beautiful, humble beginnings. When the Holy Spirit moves, we need to be in tune to it. And then we need to get on board with where he's moving because he can do world changing things if we're just willing to be faithful along the way. Yeah, so to back up and drill down. Yes. One of the things I, I found the most interesting, and of course in Canada, uh, 40 Days for Life is difficult because as you know, we have bubble zones almost everywhere. Absolutely. And so in many cities, it's actually difficult to get within eyesight of the front door. Um, uh, in Calgary, I believe it's, it's like a parking lot down the street. And so if you're lucky, somebody who's driving to the clinic might see, see you standing out there, but you can't get really close. And so that, I think, colored my initial impression of 40 Days for Life. But I guess one of the things I always thought was, why does proximity to the clinic matter mm-hmm. when you're praying about abortion? We should, everybody should be praying about abortion and the women who are undergoing crisis pregnancy and, and to, to, for this this scourge in our in, in our nations collectively right across the West at this point um, to be lifted because we 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 are under the judgment of of sacrificing these millions and millions of children. So what was it about the proximity of the people praying to the place where the killing was done that was significant to you? And then I have a second question right after that. Yeah, great question. So originally, the first person who had ever told me that it was important to be at the place where lives are being lost was Jim Sedlak, who founded Stop International, Stop Planned Parenthood, and I worked with for a couple of years during my season at American Life League. And Jim had always said that being at a Planned Parenthood outside would reduce the number of people going in. It would send a message to those working there that they were not supported by the community. It would awaken the conscience of the community. And so we had for years held prayer vigils slash demonstrations outside of the Planned Parenthood Center. But 40 Days for Life, when it began, we really, I had to grapple with that a little bit because in scripture, we're told that our prayers should be kept in our prayer closet. And, yeah. you know, if we go like the Pharisees and stand on the street corner, but a lot of that, if as, as I interpret and understand scripture, and even as I strive to understand what we're called to do, it's really, what is the intent of our prayers? If we are going out to pray to be seen, then I think our motives are wrong. Right, if right. we are going to pray for seeking God's will and being faithful to it, then our motives can be pure and right. And so one of the things, when, when my friend David Araby had suggested this idea of being out there 24 hours a day, the one thing that he had said is, first off, where is God more urgently needed than a place of such despair and hopelessness that is an abortion facility or right. a Planned Parenthood Center? And so I had recognized that importance of bringing Christ to that place. But also some of my past experience had also informed that when we are there present and we do it in a loving, compassionate way, and there's various different ways to do that. But when we are present, sometimes that presence is enough to be a sign of hope to somebody who's going into that facility to then be able to direct them elsewhere so that they don't fall prey to the lies of the abortion industry. And 40 Days has demonstrated that certainly to be true, as has Sidewalk. Advocates for Life, as has so many other efforts. So why we bring our prayers to that proximity is first off to bring God to that place. If we do it the right motives, we don't do it to be seen, but we do it to bring our faith to bear at that place. And then also to be available for the Holy Spirit to use. And I've seen so many times where women have been going in and just because of maybe one or two people standing there quietly praying, their heart has been convicted. They've gone to those people and said, thanks to you, I'm not going to have an abortion and I'm gonna go to a pregnancy center and receive the the help I need. So it really has demonstrated that that proximity is important. Like you said though, should we always pray? 
absolutely. Should we pray in our churches? Should we pray in our homes? We absolutely should. And in fact, those should be our most personal, intimate prayers with God. But when we go to that place, and even for me, the first time I went to the place before it even started doing abortions in College Station, God convicted my heart in a new way because Jonathan, I was faced with the reality of what was happening there and I knew that I couldn't solve it, but the one I was communicating with in prayer could and I asked him to guide me and thankfully over many years, he has helped me to grow in my ability to see ways that I can collaborate with him in helping to save lives. That's actually very interesting because the first time I ever stood outside an abortion clinic for the full length of its business day, I'd been working in the pro-life movement for a couple of years already and of course, I'd been to abortion clinics, but not for from like when they opened to when they closed sort of thing. And especially for a guy and when guys are sort of programmed to like, let's do something about this. Let's solve this. Right. The right. the helplessness that you feel standing there, especially in Canada, where the, 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 like the, the clinic called the cops right away, even calling out would get you arrested almost immediately. So you were even more muzzled than you are in a lot of American cities. I do remember that that was an extremely convicting experience watching those women walk in and knowing that they were walking in to drop their kids off and that when they left. They're, they'd left their children behind. That was, yes. that was really, really jarring. And mm-hmm. I want to drill down on that number, 28%. So when you, when you, when you guys uh, ended the first campaign and found you'd reduce the abortion rate by 28%, how did you get that number? And specifically, how, how do you attribute um, the canceled abortions mm-hmm. to the first campaign and then, well, you said 16,000 babies since... Mm-hmm. Uh, 40 days mm-hmm. for life started. So right. how do you, how, how do you get those numbers? How do you determine that those babies have been saved? Um, yeah, I just basically explain to our listeners yeah. how, how this happened. Yeah, so the, I'll go first to the 28%. So in Texas, there were decent reporting laws for abortions. Okay. And so in the state of Texas, they report abortions by county of residence. Now, the challenge, we were in a university town, so we could not always know whether a student was reporting their home county or the county where they were residing while a student, but at the same point, we were able to look at trends, and that's the important thing. The other thing is to never be able to, could we we identify that 28% was 100% attributable to what we were doing? No, but did the trend change when only one variable changed in our community? Right. Yes. And so those are the things that we can look at. So a lot of times, you know, when I go out and speak for pro-life groups across the United States, many states have various different levels of reporting. So I encourage people, you know, even your listeners right now, just Google abortion numbers, your state or your province name. And in some places they will report that. And sometimes you can drill down through Department of Health reports into the the more uh, detailed statistics of county of residence, or sometimes in some places they'll detail it by the abortion facility, or they'll detail it by how many came from out of state, et cetera. So there is a fair amount of data, but there are some states, and obviously I'm I'm more US centric because of my own personal lived experience, Mm -hmm. uh, that don't do any reporting at all, California and others. And so in those cases, Cases, we have to sometimes rely on uh, dubious sources like the Guttmacher Institute and, and other places that uh, will report trends and occasionally do snapshots, but we know those are not fully accurate as well. And when that's the research arm of, formerly research arm of Planned Parenthood, we have to recognize there's certainly a bias to their data. Um, so when you look at, you know, how did we, when 40 Days for Life started, one of the things that was very important to me, uh, there are a lot of good good intentioned pro-life efforts, but mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure if we're going to ask people to invest their time, their talent, and then eventually their treasure, we need to be accountable for whether or not this is producing results. Right. 
And so as I started looking at and saying, you know, I came from a business background and everything we did in business, you had to be accountable to our sales going up. Are they going down? You know, can you look at a specific customer? Are we making an impact there? What are conversion rates, et cetera? So I wanted to say, how do we apply that same thought process to our pro-life work? Right. And so looking at 40 days and realizing we were very distributed and we would not have as much accuracy and many places did not have that uh, depth of reporting. What we did there is we identified three primary indicators that would demonstrate that we were making an impact. One was reports of lives saved that could be confirmed. Right. And so the numbers that I shared, typically what happens is either somebody comes to the pro-life volunteers praying on the sidewalk and says, hey, I'm changing my mind. And those people go with that person many times to a pregnancy center, or there's some other way of verifying that this person has left and not come back. Right. So that 16,000 is accumulation of those reports. And when I was there at 40 Days, we were always verifying those stories to make sure that they were legitimate and that we felt confident in that number. So you're, um, saying, it's sure a, that, you're saying it's a minimum of 16,000 then? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. You know, again, I, I, I've heard from, you know, Abby Johnson has said that in Planned Parenthood meetings, they used to say when there are numbers of people outside of these facilities, as high as 75% of abortion appointments cancel a no-show. We yeah. have no idea how many no-shows there were, but right. some of those may have later come back. So we only measured that which we could verify. Right. The next thing was with the uh, number of abortion centers closed, which yes. 104 currently. So there are a lot of times where a facility would close but simply move to the other side of town. And we would always verify and even give time to make sure before we would report that this facility was closed. And then also recognize that it was not only due to 40 days for life. Uh, certainly that was an answer to the prayers of the people praying outside of that place. But for example, there was one facility in Pensacola, Florida, where unbeknownst to the local 40 days people, on day 38, the abortionist went out of business. The local people kept going those next two days thinking he was still open. They held their closing rally, praying for the place to close, and it had already shut down. Well, what closed that place down was the abortionist hadn't paid taxes and licensing fees for years, right. had accumulated hundreds of thousands of dollars of fines, and the local authorities finally cracked down and said, you either pay up or you're closed, and the guy went out of business. So, you know, there were other extenuating factors. Places closed because tax funding is removed from Planned Parenthood. So never do we want to say just because of the thing we did did right. this place close, but it was part part of the trend of what led to that closure. And also all of those prayers do contribute towards the outcomes, but we should celebrate whenever a facility closes and know that women are not going to be wounded, children are not going to lose their lives there, but also try to give the credit first to God and then also to all those factors that contributed towards that. So, uh, and then the last number, the abortion workers was the third indicator. And that was one we never expected. You know, right. it was when we first started having workers coming to us and it wasn't that they were just fleeing to go work, you know, at another abortion facility. They were saying, I'm out, I'm done. And when they started coming to us, we realized this is something God is doing in the hearts of people. And so as we started working with those workers and helping them, and of course, Abby Johnson through Unplanned is the most well-known story of that, but there have been so many others. Uh, that was when we said, that's another indicator and we need to start tracking. And then partnering with other healing ministries, including Abby's, and then there were none organization as well as uh, the Centurions, Dr. Philip Ney and others, we began to find ways we did not in any way feel qualified to lead the healing of these workers, but to stand with them and help them and help them find employment that was not related to the abortion industry. So again, it was a, a work in progress. And that's why I still continue to point to the Holy Spirit in all of this, Jonathan. I mean, we were blessed and, you know, I was blessed to, to be the one that God called to help start this from the prayer and the initial efforts, but really he was guiding every single step of the way. 
And over time, as I assembled a team and a board and volunteers and local leaders, I mean, through all of this, we just saw the Holy Spirit at work. And that's why, you know, for, for somebody right now who feels this burden of, I feel I'm supposed to solve the crisis of abortion, that's an overwhelming responsibility. And it's a burden that's probably too big for any of us. We yeah. know that we can, though, put that burden on God Almighty. And then when he reveals to us each, what is our part in this? And for me, for a decade, it was 40 Days for Life. Now it's in other various endeavors as I've stepped away from my formal involvement with 40 Days for Life. But for each of us, we just need to say, where am I supposed to serve? And then do our part and trust God to do the big, important parts. And together, those things work together for good. So moving away from the numbers, which I really wanted to discuss because I'm, I'm the same sure. way you are when we're looking at a pro-life project, for me, it's how can we prove we've saved lives? Because the, right. the pro-life movement, as as big as it is, it's also very small in comparison to the size of the problem. And so you really want to make sure there's no wasted time, wasted talent, and wasted treasure on things that aren't provably rescuing babies from, from death and abortion clinics. And so I find those numbers incredibly encouraging. And that's why whenever I'm talking to the head of any pro-life organization, I always say, how do you verify that babies are being saved with, with what you're doing? And I assume that most people have these mechanisms simply because who wants to pour their life into something that's often a thankless job? Uh, when they can't prove that what they're doing is actually achieving results, most right. notably, of course, the saving of lives. Jonathan, can I just throw one other thought in here? And this is something, it was very hard for me. It, it scared me silly, but ultimately it was probably one of the best things that I did in my first days leading a pro-life organization. So when I was stepping away from the business world where I was accountable for my sales, for my territory, for my you know, calls upon physicians and so forth, I realized I've got to be accountable for what I do in this pro-life effort. Right. And I'll never forget the first time you know, I, I joined this group, the Coalition for Life, on staff. I became the executive director. And the very first time I got to go out and share with somebody what we were intending to do, it was to my wife's mom's Bible study. Okay. So it was a group of moms. Their little kids are running all around. And I'm sitting there you know, laying out the grand vision for ending abortion in our town. And when I share with them that one of the things we were going to be accountable for was our presence outside of the Planned Parenthood facility, and then we were going to be accountable for the results, I said, okay, here's two things I want you to watch. I said, we believe that being outside of the abortion center is important to bring in the numbers down. So in three months, six months, if you ever drive by that abortion center and it's open and there are not people praying or sidewalk counseling outside, do not support us anymore because that's our job. And I'm sitting there going, why did I just say that? And then again, I continued on and I said, and our department of health, it's usually 12 to 18 months behind, reports the number of abortions. If that number is not going down, within a year and a half to two years, then withdraw your support. We're not doing our job. So I walked out of that, you know, these moms, I don't know whether any of them ever followed up on that, but I walked out and said, did I just like, you know, dig a big hole for myself? And I realized, no, that, like you're saying, Jonathan, if we're going to invest our lives in this, we want to make sure it's making a difference. Yeah. So whether it's the the anecdotal reports, if you're in a province or, or a city where there's no abortion reporting, are you willing to keep track of how many people are going in and out, how many abortions are yeah. happening and measure that it's going down? Are you willing to say how many people have we been able to help turn around and take to a pregnancy center whose children are now born. And if you know an effort that you're doing, you feel is a part of the solution, are you willing to be accountable to that? So for me, knowing I'd said that to all those moms, I knew that if somebody doesn't show up for their shift down at Planned Parenthood, I need to go out and do it because I've made myself accountable yep. for that. Yep. And, and so that's the so kind important. of level of accountability that we need to have. Yeah. So 
Moving away from the the big picture and and that sort of the broad sweep of how Forty Days for Life came to be, because I would I would bet that almost all of our listeners have heard of Forty Days for Life, but I would also bet that a very small percentage of them knew the story behind how it started. Mm-hmm. And I've on this podcast, we've really been trying to introduce people to all the different aspects of the pro life movement and the many different people who have these fascinating stories. And I remember when I read your book uh, on 40 Days for Life and the founding of 40 Days for Life, I remember thinking, reading through it, that if I didn't know you, uh, I wouldn't believe half of the stories in there. There are some (laughs) truly crazy things that you saw and experienced. And so I want to kind of shift from from the the chronological timeline of how 40 Days for Life got going to some of the things that you experienced when uh, you got 40 Days for Life up and started, because the pro-life movement is full of surreal experiences, and those who have been following around, along with this podcast will have heard many different surreal experiences from Joe Scheidler, Monica Miller, you, you name it, and they, they've heard them. But you've had some truly bizarre experiences. So maybe <laughs> just, what, which ones jump out at you? When I ask that question, um, and again, I think there was a couple of dozen in the book, what sort of stories jump out at you that you can share with uh, our listeners and our viewers? Yeah, there are, there are three that popped in my mind. So I'll give you the very short version of those. Um, one of them was one that was not directly attributable to 40 Days for Life, but it happened when we were doing the first 40 Days for Life campaign. And it really, again, one of those moments that God really spoke to me profoundly. <clears throat> and it was when we were running our local campaign and I was you know, leading this 24-hour-a-day effort. And the only time I left the campaign during those 40 days was to go speak for a pregnancy center in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Okay. And when I arrived that day in Grand Rapids, the director of the pregnancy center picked me up at the airport and said, before we go to the hotel, I'm going to show you something. And he drove me into downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan. And we pulled up in front of an old church-looking building. And the number of the building was 72 Ransom Avenue. And when we went inside the building, we met the brand new owners who explained why it looked like an old church building. Because years earlier, it had served initially 100 years earlier as a Jewish uh, uh, synagogue, okay. then as a Greek Orthodox church. But 10 years prior to when I was there, this was in 2004 that I was there, in 1994, the the Greek Orthodox Church had put the building on the market. Some business people bought the building, and they, instead of turning it into another church, rented it out as a commercial property, and an abortionist rented the facility and turned it into the largest abortion center in western Michigan. Wow. And so for 10 years, he aborted more than 20,000 children inside that former church building. And the local Christians grieved throughout this whole time, saying this was a place that honored God and now is, is spitting in the very face of his creation. And so people locally had prayed for years and then they thought they had an opening in 1999 when a for sale sign went up at 72 Ransom and they thought, oh, the owners are selling. We can buy it out and get rid of the abortionist and close down his practice. But the owner wanted nothing to do with that and wouldn't sell the building. And for five years, they, they struggled and, and they had challenges with this. But finally, in 2004, they made a ridiculously high offer. The owner sold it. They closed the abortionist down, forced him out of business. And when they came in, the business people who had bought it, they, after shutting down the abortionist, they deeded the building over to a ministry called Life International that places pregnancy centers all around the world. Okay. And so as soon as they did that, here I am a few days later meeting the new owners, the, the directors of Life International. And five days before I was there, Jonathan, there were abortions being committed inside this former church building. So when they took me through the tour and witnessing the rooms, the check-in room and the the filth and disgust and the procedure room where there was rust and blood on the floor and and there was mold on the wall. And five days earlier, they had been doing so-called safe and legal abortions inside this room. 
It was very traumatic for me. But the most profound part of that experience was when they told me about the day they took ownership of the building, five days earlier. They called every pastor, every every member of the clergy and ministry leaders to come to the building. They all gathered at the building and they said, we need to pray over every inch of this place. And so they went down the steps, went down the hall to where the abortionist every morning would come into the building, he would park in the alley, come in this big metal door and, and then come in and start his deadly business. And so they gathered inside that big metal door, it was closed and they prayed fervently and said, we're gonna walk through the whole building. But at the end of that time of prayer there at that door, the pastor said the amen and that door burst open and they felt a rush of wind go out. And a few seconds later, they felt a gentle breeze come back in and they were stunned. They had no idea what just happened here. So they walked back upstairs and while they're standing there, just still kind of stunned by what had happened, a woman walks in off the street and she said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were having a meeting, but I just wanted to ask what happened to your statue? And they said, I'm sorry, what statue? And she said, well, I run by here all the time and you've had for years the statue on the roof of the building and that big demon figure perched on the roof. I never understood it. She said, but that statue's gone. I wanted to know what happened to the statue. Well, there had never been any statue of a demon on top of that building. But when they looked at this woman's eyes, they said they could tell she believed that she had seen something and it was gone that day. And as they described to me, five days after all these events happened, they said, David, we think we experienced a spiritual transfer of ownership of 72 Ransom. And for me, I I agree. I believe that's what they experienced. And it really, for me, underscored, you know, for years I'd been trying to approach this largely from uh, what marketing messages are we using? You know, what business tactics, what fundraising procedures? And I realized at that moment, this is a profound spiritual battle between heaven and hell, between good and evil. And we need to put on the full armor of God and approach this first and foremost in a spiritual way. So that was one of the stories. So um, the two others that popped in my mind, and on both these I can keep very concise here, one of them was in uh, a suburb of Los Angeles in East LA. It's a suburb called La Puente, California. There was a young woman who found herself in an unexpected pregnancy. She was terrified. She didn't know where to turn. And so she convinced her mother to drive her to the abortion center. Well, similar to what you've experienced in Canada, in La Puente, the way this was set up, the abortion center was at the back of an office park. There was no way to get close proximity and access. So the 40 days vigil was on the side of the street outside of the office park. So they never were able to interact with people knowing, are they going in to go get their copier fixed or are they going in for an abortion? But that day as the girl and her mom drove past the 40 days people and went way into the back of the office park, the girl in the back of the car started to cry and she said, mom, why are those people praying so loud? It's like they're yelling at me inside the car. And her mom turned around and said, what on earth are you talking about? Those people were praying silently. And the girl just started to cry. And she said, I just wish God would tell me what I'm supposed to do here. And her mom said, maybe those tears That's the way God's trying to tell you exactly what you know in your heart you're supposed to do. So the girl jumped out of her car. Her name was Laura. She ran out to the street, all the way outside the office park. She ran to those people and she said, I need a lot of help. And they took her to the local pregnancy resource center and they stayed with her throughout her pregnancy. And even after her child was born, a little girl she named Leah. And when I got the call a few months later after Leah was born that the abortion center where Leah almost lost her life was closing down, that it was shutting down. The 40 days people said, we're gonna have a rally to thank God for closing this place down. When I flew out there that day, 
And we were celebrating what God had done, mourning the lives of those who'd been lost. Laura, the young mom, came up to me with Leah in her arms and her grandmother, Leah's grandmother was with her. And she just said, thank you so much for what this has meant to me and to my child. And I got to hold this beautiful little girl. And, and of all my travels, more than 550 cities, Jonathan, I've only met a handful of the children who've right. been directly saved. But I recognized again, that's one of those stories that that was that miraculous way that God intervened, but yet it was through that presence and that nearby proximity Proximity, that that mother was able to receive help. And to meet that child was such a beautiful and profound experience. And for anybody listening right now, if you've not yet met a boy or girl who's alive because of your involvement in the pro-life efforts, yep. I pray one day soon that you do get to have yeah. that experience. And my third and final story, if we still got enough time, no, I'll just share no, very briefly. Do. Okay. Um, third and final story, and this is probably more speaking to those who are leading a pro-life effort or maybe feeling called to step out in faith and lead a pro-life effort. So when I felt the call to quit my job and take on the leadership of that group, the Coalition for Life, for the first few months, we were working really hard. We reached the end of the year. It was December 31st and we had zeroed out our bank balance. We had no money in the account and we were going to come back after the New Year's holiday on January 2nd with $2,500 in bills due. And we had tapped out. We'd made every phone call. We'd sent out every fundraising letter. We didn't know where else to go. So when we came back on January 2nd, I got my little team there, my staff, and we prayed at the wooden table. Little did I know that would be the table where later we would discern 40 days for life. But I just said, you know, we're at the end of the rope here and we've tried to do this the best we know how to do and we need to pray. And so during that prayer at that same wooden table, we just said, God, we, we felt we were doing your work. If we're not, we, we accept that. We're gonna be at peace. We'll, we'll go on and do other things. But if you want this to continue right now, it's completely on you. We've tried everything we know how to do. It's on you. And no kidding, Jonathan, we finished the prayer. The mailman walked in. He dropped a pile of mail. We opened it up. There were $2,800 in unsolicited donations that showed up in the mail that day. And that was the first time I realized that if God wants this work to be done, he will bring the people to bear. He will bring the resources to bear. He'll give us the plan with the accountability for the results. And he will bless those efforts. And that's why we need to rely so heavily on him. We do our part. We work like it depends upon us, but we pray like it depends upon God because it truly, truly does. Augustine. I was actually just thinking, listening to you tell that story, the title of your book should have been, Why Are They Praying So Loudly? <laughs> Maybe that's the next book. Maybe we, and that girl, Leah, today, I think she's now seven or eight years old. I get pictures every now and then. I've seen her a couple of times when I've gone back. But, you know, to, it's not just that the child that is saved from abortion today, but it's watching these children grow up. I have children in Croatia that I've met, and now I get pictures and updates on. I have children across the U.S. that I that are now eight, nine, ten years old. That you know, it's just so beautiful to watch. And, and Jonathan, I think about you know your work with with CBR and and the work you're even doing here today. None of us will fully know the impact of what we're doing until arriving in our heavenly home and getting to hear those beautiful words, "Well done, good and servant." But also, like the late Henry Hyde used to talk about, hearing that chorus of voices of of children who say, "He spoke up for me when no one else." Did. She spoke up for me. And so you know, we need to press on in this work. It's tough. It's spiritually tough. It's emotionally draining. It's tiring. And there are days where we all want to throw in the towel and quit. But if we persevere, if we press on, God is going to do amazing things. And I just want to encourage those who may even right now be feeling like I'm at the end of the rope. Right. Keep going. God will bless your efforts. I do want to uh, ask you one more question before we go, sure. just because I, I know that you, you 40 Days for Life is what you're known for. 
but you've stepped away from 40 Days for Life and you're doing other things. So before I let you go, and I do want to, I really want to do this again because I know you have. Yeah, I would love to. You have a ton of stories. So we're going to, we're going to reprise this and go through even more of those stories. But before I let you go, maybe tell our listeners and our viewers a bit of what you've been up to uh, since you stepped away from 40 Days for Life. Yeah. So I started to feel, and really it was about 2015, I just started to feel a sense that God was bringing to an end my season of leadership of 40 Days for Life. And, you know, I, I really feel that it was, it, it became as clear to me, Jonathan, that I was supposed to end my season there as it was when I was supposed to begin my season there. Okay. Uh, and, and also, you know, I think it's important. We, we've, for far too long, we've seen ministries that are personality driven, celebrity driven, and, and right. really this is all God driven. And I knew that if my season was done, I needed to hand on the organization and again, let the Holy Spirit continue to work through it. And also I'm kind of an entrepreneurial person. I like to start and build things, but then when it comes to a point of more just kind of management and maintenance, that's not my strength. Right. So when I was starting to realize this, I was saying, okay, God, where do you want me? And I didn't have absolute clarity on it, but I knew that I was supposed to do some broader things across the pro-life movement, as well as some things more touching on the areas of marriage and family. And so even though I didn't have that clarity of what I was supposed to do, I felt that if I knew I was not supposed to long-term be at 40 days, I had an obligation to everybody involved to, to hand it on and to, to move beyond that. And so when I stepped away in December of 2016 from 40 days, I thought that, oh, it's going to all become clear and very short order. And it, it, it did not. Um, it was very challenging in some ways because I thought I was going to step into a new apostolate, a direct ministry or organization. Right. And I just didn't have a piece about that. And so what I instead did is I was getting tons of requests from other organizations saying, hey, can you help us out with this? Can you help us out with that? And so for the last two and a half years, most of what I've done has been advising and helping other organizations. Okay. And it's been a great, great blessing. So I've helped groups like the March for Life discover a plan for doing state or state capital organized March for Life oh, to expand awesome. their reach. I've worked with Students for Life and helped them to refine and improve their communications plan and strategy. I worked with NIFLA during their Supreme Court case on their communication strategy. We added thousands of new people to their ranks and raised a lot of money to help them fund their legal efforts, um, groups like the Thomas More Society, helping them with uh, legal funds for David Delyden and other pro-life advocates, and then some quiet projects, some of which I'm not even at liberty to talk about at this moment, but which will be uh, more, more publicly known in the near future. So the blessing of that has been to see the greater breadth and depth of the pro-life movement than just one narrow focus of it. And to realize that, again, God is working on so many different fronts and to be able to say, what are the common themes? And to be able to start distilling those down, to use those to encourage other leaders and organizations and those discerning leadership, but then also to look at a broader kind of perspective of the culture and realize that as critical as it is for us to work to save lives from abortion and to work to end abortion, abortion is symptomatic of some deeper root right. causes. Yeah. And we can't end one without also addressing some of these other root causes. To me, it's a loss of, of faith. To me, it's a loss of the breakdown of, of marriage and family. We need to treat those things as well. Not to say that any one of us is responsible for doing all of that, but we need to make sure those efforts are all working in concert with one another. So my wife and I have been doing a lot of marriage and family ministry work with focus fellowship of Catholic University students, some within our, our diocese where we live in, in Virginia, 
and uh, also trying to figure out how can we more closely integrate uh, family efforts with pro-life efforts because really the dignity of the human person is at the core of the dignity of the family and, and the, the, uh, the sacred nature of marriage in, in itself. So again, we're still on this journey of discovery. During this time, our, our children have grown. Our daughter went off and joined the Nashville Dominican Convent this past August. Our son is a senior in high school, so he graduates in May. Okay. So we're looking forward to a very new and exciting ministry chapter together as a couple uh, this coming year. And so we'll have a lot more to share and I'll look forward to bringing it back onto the Van Maren share, show so we could talk about those things. But God is so good. And I guess my, my closing thought, if I were to say to anybody who, who's listening is, God has a great plan for each and every one of us. And if we are willing to submit ourselves to him, to do our best to grow in faith, to grow in holiness, and to continually ask, where can you use me? My gifts, my experiences, the burdens you've placed on my heart, these challenges that we're facing in our culture. If you are willing to discern your place and you're willing to take some of these ideas we've talked about and many more that Jonathan talks about on this show with his guests and apply them to your life, you can work directly with God to build his kingdom and to change the world for good. You can make a profound difference and I just want you to cheer you on, to encourage you and say, you can do it. With God's help, you can do it. David, thank you so much for taking the time. Jonathan, it's always a blessing and look forward to doing this again soon. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my interview with David B. Wright, the founder of 40 Days for Life. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this interview. And if you want to hear other interviews of pro-life and pro-family leaders from the front lines in front of abortion clinics to the ivory tower, head over to lifesidenews.com and check out the podcasts there, as well as other essential life and family commentary. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week.